You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I kind of want to look at the first passing of the baton. I want to look at the first family that tried to tell the next generation that they weren't of this world. And and we'll just draw some conclusions as we look at that. So would you turn to Genesis chapter 4? And just, you know, we'll think about the fact that we're not of this world. Certainly that's relative to our destiny, but it's relative to our origins too. Here in Genesis 4, it says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time... It came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and unto his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. We are introduced to this interesting scene. Adam knew Eve. That's not talking about he, he met her, somebody introduced him. There wasn't anybody. It's talking about intimacy, physically. He knows Eve. He is physically intimate with his wife, And she conceived, it says, and she bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So she names him Cain. The idea is is gotten there. That's why she names him that. And no doubt she thinks that God is fulfilling what he said, I will put enmity between thee and between the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, he shall rule over thee. She's thinking, where it says, I've gotten a man of the Lord. It's literally by the Lord. And she thinks this is it. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is, I've gotten a man. And she, she looks at Cain and she gives him that name, acquired, gotten uh, of the Lord. And, you know, no doubt great hopes as Cain comes into the world. No, no, no doubt that. And then it says, she again bare his brother Abel. Abel is a keeper of sheep. Cain is a keeper, uh, a tiller of the ground. Abel has the idea of vain, vanity. Now, it's an interesting picture here. We have, look, this is the first two human beings born. 
Adam and Eve were not born. Adam was created, and Eve was taken from his side. She was not born. These are the first two human beings born. You have to understand, it tells us back in chapter 3, verse 24, it says, So he, God, drove out the man and placed at the east of Eden the cherubim and the flaming sword and and turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. It gives us a great sense that Adam and Eve didn't want to leave the garden. They didn't want to leave. He had to drive them out of the garden. And understand, when he drives them out of the garden, he drives them into an empty world. Imagine the entire planet without another human being on it. And the only thing you've known is the presence of God. And because sin has entered into the picture, God drives you from his presence out into what? He drives them out into the world completely alone. It's an empty world, if you can imagine that. And she becomes pregnant. She's just a young girl. Six months, a year, we're not sure how old she is at this point in time. She has no models. She, she, you know, her, she didn't have a mother. She didn't know anything about parenting. Imagine this. Now, no doubt they're genius. They're brilliant. You know, the falls and in fact... But all of a sudden, this thing has entered into their world that's different than anything they've experienced. And she gives birth to this young man, Cain. Look, these are not Neanderthal men, these first men. They're highly intelligent, remarkable, no doubt, in many ways. And they become the first two on the planet to hear, you know what, we're not from this world. What you're seeing around you This is not our origin. We didn't start here. You know, you look at these two young men here. It says one of them is a tiller of the ground. The other one is a keeper of sheep. It kind of gives you the the picture there. But understand, there's never been two boys more alike than these two. There's There's something God wants us to see. These two boys are no doubt more alike than any identical twins that have ever been born. Because there's not two families. It doesn't say, gee, you know, Cain looks like mom's side of the family. Abel looks like dad's side of the family. There is no side to the family. There's only Adam who was created, and then Eve is taken from his side. It's the exact same gene pool. Adam married his rib. <laughs> so so th- there's never been two boys born consecutively or at the same time that are more alike, that look more alike. There's no choices. There's only one set of DNA. So here you have these two more alike than anyone that, that's, that's ever been born, these two boys. And understand this, there's no in-laws. There's no peer pressure. It's not, uh, you know... Abel's a good boy, but that Cain, he hung around with the wrong crowd. There ain't anybody. It's not like Cain, we think he's the wicked one. He listened to heavy metal or, you know, gangster rap or something, and Abel listened to church praise music. There, there ain't nothing. There's no influences. They didn't go to different high schools. They don't like different foods. One likes hot dogs, one likes hamburgers. There's, there's no trends. There's no Facebook. Abel's not getting more likes than Cain. None of that's going on. Understand, God deliberately puts them in front of us because they're the fountainhead. 
everything's distilled from these two boys. And we like to blame our environment. We like to say today, well, that kid grew up poor. That kid grew up without a dad. Or that kid grew up, you know, and no doubt there's challenges in, in all of those things. But here are two with the exact same circumstances. And one is going to decide to walk the way that the Lord says. And another one's going to decide to walk in a completely different way. And there's only two choices. There's only two kids. And I think probably after Cain grows for a while, no doubt not only was Eve raising Cain, I think Cain was probably raising Cain. There were no terrible twos before the fall. All of a sudden she's encountering some young kid with a fallen nature. That, that, so she thinks this can't be the Messiah. And then when the next one's born, he looks exactly like the first one. She must be thinking, oh, not again. So she names him Vanity, Abel. This whole thing is not working out. You know, he, this other one comes. And so you look at them and think, well, how is it that they differ? How do these two differ? It says this in verse 3, that in the process of time... It came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but not unto Cain, you know, the record. Look at these two boys here. The way they differ is in the way they worship. It's, it's telling us certain things here. It says, in the process of time. The, the Hebrew is an interesting phrase. It's in the end of days. We don't know is it the end of the week. It seems to be there's an appointed time. And it says they both brought, so there's an appointed place. They both brought unto, so there's a place. And they both brought offerings. There isn't anything wrong with tilling the ground. God had said back in chapter 2, verse 15, And the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And then he said to Adam, In the sweat of thy face shall they eat of the bread of the ground. So there's anything wrong with working. And there's anything wrong with, there's anything evil in and of itself that, that, uh, that Cain was working and bringing forth the fruit of the ground. That has nothing to do with it. There was something that was in front of them. One of them had responded one way. One of them responded the other. And no doubt it's what they had learned from their father. He was not born outside of paradise. That was not his origin. He was the first father, pastor, youth pastor that says to these two young guys in his youth group, boys, you're not of this world. And no doubt that arose because you have, you have two young boys. The world is still pristine in some ways, no doubt. They must have been saying, Dad, look, look at this, look at this butterfly. It's got six-foot wingspan, look at this. And Adam was probably, yeah, that's, that's cool, boys. Dad, look, we found this, th these grapes growing here. We brought this one back. It took two of us. Look at this grape. Yeah, that's really... That's something, boys, it really is. 
looked at, here's a rose petal. It's as big as a blanket. It took both of us to smell that baby. You know, yeah. And somewhere along the line, I have no doubt, those two boys said, what is dad's problem? He is such a bummer. He's miserable all the time. He's never happy. And it was probably Eve that said, boys... Let me tell you, because usually the moms have them when they're younger, you know. In our home, they would not have survived without my wife during those younger years. When they started to be 14, 15, I said to them, look, okay, honey, you've given them life, you've preserved their lives, you've fed them, you've taken care of them, and now they need an attitude adjustment. The gears have shifted. It's my responsibility now. Let me adjust their attitudes. But no doubt when the boys were little, she said, boys, your father and I were on the other side. And we walked with him. And we saw his face. And every face in this world is fallen on the other side. His countenance, his face. We can't tell you what it was like to walk with him in the cool of the day. To look into his face, not a Facebook. The human has the capacity to look into another face and to care. My wife is great at this. We'll go through church and she'll say, did you see this? Did you see? And I'll be saying, I didn't see any of that. If I saw all that, I'd jump out the window. How can you see all these things? This guy looks sad. This guy looked, this person had a tear in their eye. This person, you know, just we're made to see those things, to be attentive to one another, to care about one another. But imagine what it was like before the fall when God specifically created men to have fellowship with him in all of that openness without sin to look into the face of God, he actually made the eyeballs in Adam's head to look into his face. Of all of the things that eyeballs see and all of the things that eyeballs do, we're not going to appreciate them until we're caught up into glory and we see the lamb that was slain in the midst of the throng. When we see what's there, then we're going to understand what eyeballs were for. They weren't for rose petals and butterflies and all that's pretty cool, boys, but you don't know what was on the other side. And no doubt the only time they would see their dad occasionally with a measure of peace, I'm not sure if a smile, is as they were small boys occasionally either in the evening or in the morning, They would see Adam walk away with a lamb, and they'd hear it bleeding. (laughs) And he'd walk into the distance. No doubt they'd hear somewhat of a bit of pain in the voice of that animal, and then silence. And however long that was, Dad would come back with blood on his hands and blood on his robe. Peace. 
in his face. Because he had touched that other world again through the blood of the Lamb. And I have to believe, I think of Adam's memories. You know, we think of God, the creator, yes, awesome in power. We think of his glory. We think of his majesty. But I have to believe there was also a lamb-likeness in his face. There was a tenderness unlike any human tenderness that's ever been exhibited. There was a gentleness unlike any human gentleness that's ever been demonstrated. There was a vulnerability unlike any vulnerability that any sinful man has ever known. And I think Adam, when he would cut the throat of that lamb, he would remember the look of that lamb in the face of the one that he walked with in Eden. No doubt he would sit there and realize he himself himself becomes the sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. What was it like for him then to try to communicate that to the boys? Whatever it was, Abel took hold of it. Abel saw it. Abel received it. Look, two boys in the same family, two kids in the same youth group, two because, you know, sometimes we feel like it's our failure because we don't get something across perfectly. No, here's two kids, same environment, same peer pressure, same influence, all that, and one of them takes hold of the truth about the blood of the Lamb and another world. And one of them chooses to do his own thing. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Our responsibility is to bring Christ to men. Only God brings men to Christ. The question is, for you and I, this generation that we're facing now doesn't need, you know, a system of worship. There was no law, no Torah, no Ten Commandments here. There was no religion here. There was a relationship with the living God. And it was real enough that their father wore it on his face. Do our kids see in our own life something real enough between us and Jesus that they can't deny it? They may not want to submit to it. They may not want to yield to it. But it should be undeniable from you and I. Do they see that in our face? Will we find ourselves alone with Him? Are we overwhelmed with His love? We, like David, have to say, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Lord, bring me back to my first love. Fill me again with Your Holy Spirit. Lord, touch me with those things of another world because I know we are not of this world, either in our origin or in our destiny. And layer upon layer upon layer is being, you know, pounded upon young people of of stimuli and all of these things. And sometimes in the church thinks, well, we need to become cool. We need to become hip so we can reach them with some watered down, anemic level of what we were before we were saved. You've got to be kidding me. You know, I don't imagine Adam said to the boys, hey, 
you know, just use a few edgy words. That'll help you get close to the Lord. Have a little brew. You've got to be kidding me. Down inside of every human being, there is a need that is so deep that only Almighty God can reach down and take hold of that life. And there is a need in every life that can't be met by any kind of phony layers and you know exterior wrapping. There is a need in every human being that is only changed as the Holy Spirit of God reaches down inside of a human being with something that is real and something that is genuine. Something from another world. And when I think of my grandkids and the world they face, I think of the church in Philadelphia. I think of the husband I should be. And the father I should be. I'm a man who needs to get a hold of another world. You can do that whatever you want. I am a man who needs to get a hold of another world. I need the living Christ more than I ever have before in my life. I need His presence and His power and His Holy Spirit to be more real to me than ever before. I need His Word to rise off the page and speak to me like it never has before. Then everybody around me can do whatever they want with that. I just have to know. Because you can fake cool, but you can't fake genuine. And people know that. People know that. Yeah, dad would come back. That's when he would have a different look on his faith. And, and it leaves us with this fountainhead from Genesis chapter 4. There's only two belief systems in the world. There is one belief system that is relative to substitutionary atonement. That an innocent substitute has to die in our place or we're gone. There is another belief system that man does his own religious thing. Every religious practice on earth flows from those two belief systems. It's interesting, we're told in Luke chapter 11... It says that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees of this generation, from the blood of Abel. He says here, the blood of all the prophets. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar, it shall be required of this generation. Jesus says Abel was a prophet. It tells us in Revelation 19, the second half of Verse 10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So Abel, when he sacrificed this lamb, is not just doing something imitating his father. He's taking hold of something. When he is shedding the blood of that lamb, he's taking hold of what his father told him about the Creator and about redemption. He's doing it in faith. It says here that he's a prophet. Interesting, it tells us this about Cain, it says that we should love one another. It says, and not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? 
because his own works were evil. That's an interesting assessment. And his brothers were righteous. His own works were evil. What do you mean? There's all these other religious systems. You mean they're evil? No, I didn't say that. The Bible said that. Because any other substitute that puts itself before human beings and tells them you can trust this instead of the blood of the Lamb sends people to hell forever. And that is the work of the wicked one. He's a murderer and a liar from the beginning. You know, we have, we have the beautiful unction, you know, through our salvation to know that we can learn and apply certain things here. You know, it says, I hath not seen, speaking of the, really the unbelieving world, Ear hath not heard, neither has entered in the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But for you and I, by his Spirit, he's made those things real to us. Paul says, I find that I'm renewed day by day, you know, while we look. Not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Because the things that are seen are temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. We have offered to us from another world by the living God, I believe, certain resources. One, we have His Word. You know, His Word is not of this world. This right here is not of this world. It's not just a book, it's a lamp unto our feet, it's a light unto our path. It says, You and I are born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, which is the Word of God. It says that this is like the rain and the snow that comes down from heaven. It never returns void. It accomplishes what God sends it forth to do. Jesus in John 17 says, Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Not thy Word is true. Thy Word is truth. It's from another world. You know, if we understand inerrancy in ministry properly, we realize that isn't just the writer that was inspired. It's what went through his quill to the page. It's the rote that's inspired. It is what is on the page that's inspired. When Paul put the quill down and walked away, he was no longer inspired. But what he had just put to the page remained inspired. The Old Testament prophets wrote things, and then we're told they longed to look into the things that they wrote, but they weren't for them. They were inspired when they put them down, but they didn't understand them fully because they were for the heirs of salvation. So first of all, you and I have at our disposal, and it's an open book test. We have God's Word, which is not of this world. It's from that other realm. I think it's important for us to realize we have prayer. And look, prayer to me takes tremendous faith. I'm 63 years old. I've been saved for 41 years. I've been saved longer than I was unsaved. And I'm still learning to pray. I pray out loud now more than I ever had. People see me in the car, they think I have a Bluetooth. I'm not a technology guy. But I'm, I'm, I'm linked up, I'll tell you that. 
And, and I just enjoy more than ever just praying. I just say, Lord, you've got to help me. I just, he just hears from me. And I've, I've learned to enjoy it. To just talk with Him. Because He, he beckons us to pray. Isn't it interesting? Uh, he says, ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. In fact, it's, it's ask and keep on asking, and it will continually be given. Seek and keep on seeking, you will continue to find. Knock and reverently knock, and it will continue to be open. It's very interesting to read it in his tenses. But he's the one who's asking. He's the first asker. He's asking us to ask. I mean, he tells us in Psalm 139 that we know, he knows what we're going to say before we say it. Before a word is formed in our mouth, he already knows what's going to come out, and yet he asks us to pray. To me, that's a, that's a phenomenon. If, my, if I knew what my wife was going to say before she even said it, I'd never tell her to say it. And if she knew that I knew what she was going to say before she said it, I'd never have an excuse. He knows what we're going to say. And he says, say it, ask, seek, knock. We lift the name of, of Jesus before him. It's funny, Lewis's father talked to me. He was 83. He was filled with cancer. He was dying. And I called him up, and Lewis and I have become friends. And his dad said to me, I've been waiting for your call for a long time. I said, well, if I'd have known that, I'd have called 30 years ago. And uh, we just talked, and he laughed. You know, he, he's 83. He was filled with cancer. He outlived all of his doctors that told him he was going to die. And uh, we talked about prayer. And he said, Joe, I believe God will change natural law and human government when we pray. When we lift the name of Jesus before him, it gives to God what he wants of us so that he can alter human government and natural law. We have something from another world. And I'm just learning about it. And I'm telling you this. We are, we are jammed up with all kinds of things coming in all kinds of directions. And I'm trying to learn, you know, on the vertical. It says, that, it says when Elisha, he, that he was surprised when the Lord didn't tell him something. I'm surprised when he does tell me something. I think, I, I, I want those sensitivities, you know, but we do have prayer. That's something, the origin is from another world. Look, we have his love. Here, and here is something we are all still, and there's people sitting right here tonight that are still grappling with this. His love. And his love is not of this world. It is not of this world. Micah tells us this. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, that passeth by transgression, the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. You know, Campbell Morgan's the one who said it when he read this verse. He said, there's something that you and I see every day that God cannot see. There's something we see every day that God can't see. You're thinking, here comes the heresy. He's getting he's saying something blasphemous. No, no, I'm telling you the truth. We see something every day that God can't see, and it says it right here. We see our equals. Who is a God like unto thee? He looks around the heaven. He has no equal. 
We look around, we see miserable, gripey, coffee-drinking, cigarette-smoking, talking on the phone, driving on the highway, human beings, we're yelling at each other, we get mad at each other, people say they love us, and then they let us down, people say we can depend on them, and then we can't, they say, give me ten bucks, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear to God, I'll give it back, and never comes back. We're surrounded with human beings. And then when God tells us He loves us, we've been chewed up and spit out so many times by something that's called love. We think, I'm not, I'm not willing to be vulnerable one more time. Great, everybody loves me, and nobody loves me. Every time I become vulnerable to love, I'm vulnerable to the point where somebody can step on me and break my heart and break my life. But His love's not of this world. He doesn't love you because you deserve to be loved. He didn't sit in heaven and say, they are so cute. I'm going to send my son down there to die for some of them. I just got to buy some of them for myself. He loves us because His very nature is love. And we either receive that by faith or we never enjoy it. We either step out of the boat onto the water when He beckons us to come or we never enjoy it. He loves you. I'm not worthy of it. Right. Get over it. He loves you. I don't deserve it. Absolutely right. Get over it. He loves you. I could never earn it. You're right. You can't earn it. Get over it. He loves you. It's from another world. It's from another world. It's from another world. And here was a mom and dad trying to tell the first two men born on earth about another world and say to them we're not we're not from this world this is not our origin this is not what we're from it's not our destiny there's a god who loves us you know what would it be like for you and i we we read in the scripture that god so loved the world he gave his only begotten son all the verses about his love what would it be how different would it be for you if you could just have one look into the face of the one who's telling you they love you. You know, my wife does that with me. Honey, you want to go to the mall? Yeah. You know, it's like, I know the right answer. I've broken the code. But it ain't on my face when I say it. Uh, Yeah, I want to go to the mall. You know, I mean, what, what would it be like if we could look into the face of the one who says that he loves us? unconditionally and everything in that glory and everything in that face just reaffirmed what he's telling us because some of you here need to receive that you can't give somebody the measles unless you got it and we have something from another world to introduce into this world to a generation that's coming up under us to a generation that's around us And God's given us His Word, which is not from this world. He's given us prayer, which is otherworldly. He's given us His love, which is from another world. And then, you know, we are to participate in the, in the you know, passing that along to others. We do our best. God is the one who makes it ultimately happen. 
But you do that. Look, and you know, Moses, Joshua. You just go through the scripture, you see them. Jonathan. When Jonathan takes the garrison of the Philistines, that was 1065 B.C. David is born 1055 B.C., 10 years later. Jonathan is at least 20 years old when he takes the garrison of the Philistines. David's born 10 years after that. Jonathan was at least 30 years older than David. And when David killed the giant, somewhere around 17 years of age, Jonathan, at 47 years old, saw this kid carry the head, drag the head and the sword of this giant into his father's court. And it says the heart of Jonathan was knit to David. He was 47 and David was 17. Jonathan was the greatest king Israel never had. Don't think, I'm too old. I'm not cool enough. I'm not slick enough. He was a huge influence in the life of David. Because he could see that in him. I mean, Paul and Timothy, you know, you just, uh, I think we have here, you know, and we have to come to terms with, this is either supernatural, it, it, it's, it's reality, or it isn't anything. We can't make it more powerful if, if we get skinny pants and a grubby beard and a leather jacket and look cool. But that's, that's almost dumb, you know. I, 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 I'm, I'm into being relative. I'm into all of that stuff. I think it's great we should do that. I think we should be sensitive. I, I like all that. That's fine. But to think that has anything in the final analysis to do with bridging the gap between another world and this world... You know, I, I talked to some of the girls in our high school, and I said, get me the cutters. Get me the cutters. I want the teenage girls in our school that are cutting themselves. And I want to sit down with them and tell them that Jesus loves them. I want them to tell me why they're doing that. I have this group of young girls that are falling apart. And he just talked to somebody. She saw her mom and dad gunned down in front of her. Her daughter was just gunned down last fall. Her brother was killed in front of her. She's going to meet with some of these young girls and just let them dump out on the table. Some of the, you know, and, and, but they know when somebody loves them. They know when somebody cares about them. They know when it's real. And they know when it's genuine. And they've been through enough mess in life they can tell something phony a mile away. And cool does not cut it for them because their life is a train wreck. And when you come to them and say, there's another world, this is temporary. There's a day coming when he's going to wipe the tears away from our eyes. And it ain't that far away. He's going to gather us to himself. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. That's our destiny, because it was our origin. And as long as we're here, we, we want wisdom and God's strength to pass the baton, correct? To the next generation. Church is one, one generation from extinction for the last 2,000 years. But it's still here. Chuck is gone, he's in glory. Generation of great men are passing on. The baton comes to us. What do we do with that? And I think at our churches, 
we get on our knees. I think Calvary Chapel as a movement needs to be born again. Because it wasn't the Calvary Chapel movement. It was the Jesus movement. And we need a fresh outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. We need the touch of God's love so powerful and so real that we realize we've encountered something from another world. And that has to be real enough in our own lives. You know, what takes us away? Do we play with pornography? Do we let things in our lives? Do we let stuff slip in? Do we let, you know, bitterness overtake us? Do we let doubt? Do we let things take a precedent over the word? Do we really get alone with Jesus? You know, I want to be alone with him in the morning. I want to sit in his presence. I sit in his presence. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed because he likes me. He loves me because he has to, but he likes me. He's my father. I sit with him, and I think of my boys when they were small, just to sit with them. I know he delights in me. He delights in me. Look, I'm not an egomaniac. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but I just have the great sense. I can lift my head to heaven and say, Abba, Father. And I know something about him, and then I'll close. My son Josh is here. Four and a half years, he almost bled out. Tonsils. Eleven days later, blood count was below six. He bled out over half of his blood, seizuring, vomiting, blood everywhere inside the van. I had to wipe off the inside of the windshield to see where I was driving. And I thought for sure, this is it. This is see you later. My wife was screaming, praying in tongues, telling me to drive faster. I'm already going 100 miles an hour. I thought all of us are going to be dead by the time this ride is over. But it was one of those things that I can never get out of my mind. People came down the hospital to bring us some fresh clothes. When I got off the elevator, Kathy and I were sitting there. We were so covered with blood, they broke down weeping when they looked at us. And I can never get the image of my Joshua bleeding out in front of me out of my mind. And my memory's going. I'm 63. But when my Father in Heaven says to me, Joe, I can never forget the sight of my Joshua bleeding out for you. Ever. It is ever in front of me. I love you. I love you. That's the message that Adam brought back at the end of the day with blood on his hands and blood on his gown, peace on his face. One's going to take it, another may not take it. It never changes the message, ever. There's another world. The only way to that other world is through the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Joe Foch. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Joe's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.